I wasn't expecting to take a trip this morning, but it was nice being in the 90s for a little bit. I thoroughly enjoyed that, so thank you, Cindy and worship band. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good? Good? Summer's almost over, Um, which is kind of sad, right? Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Every time. Uh, I'm going to dismiss the children at this point to Children's Church. One of these Sundays, I'll get it. Yeah. So if you are a child, head on downstairs. Thank you. So season, uh, the summer season is obviously going to continue after this week, but we will be going back to uh, two services next week, which is kind of sad, right, because we don't get to meet as one big group, and we have to go back to trying to catch up in that 10-minute window between the services, uh, the week's worth of exciting things that happen in your life. But uh, it is also exciting because we're ramping up for the students to come back, to breathe some new life into uh, Amherst and the Valley here. So that's exciting to the extroverts. The introverts, probably not so much. Uh, It's probably been nice having a quiet uh, summer. But the students are coming back, and that is inevitable. So we're going to move back to two services. Uh, my name is Tommy Moore, and I'm going to be walking us through some scripture this morning. And my, my goal this morning is to talk about the goal. Um, if you've been with us this summer, you'd know that we're going through a sermon series right now um, on the spiritual gifts called Gifted. And, and each week, we've been looking at different ways that God has gifted us as believers to help grow His church, um, both in number, but also in depth of our faith. And so the definition of, the, of spiritual gifts that we've been using all summer um, is this. Spiritual gifts are unique talents or abilities that are given to us by God, that are empowered by God, um, used in order to grow the kingdom of God. So that's kind of the, the, the way that we've been talking about spiritual gifts. See, these, these aren't... Um, the innate skills or talents that you've been born with necessarily. And, and though you might see some expressions or shadows of spiritual gifts in the lives of non-believers, whether it be leadership or teaching or mercy or other things that we've been talking about this summer, um, they're not fully awakened or, or purposed until the Holy Spirit enters our lives and, and kind of flips that switch. And so when those, those switches are flipped and, and the giftings become empowered by God, when they're cultivated through practice in the community of believers, when they're used in the ways that they're designed to be used in order to grow the church body, then you have some pretty awesome spiritual gifts um, in action. But what does it look like exactly when all of these gifts come together? We spent all of this time talking about the spiritual gifts um, kind of in isolation. Uh, but, but what do they all amount to? A lot of these gifts, they actually, all of the gifts, they don't, mu- they don't make much sense uh, in isolation. And, and if we were to stop the sermon series now, it, it would almost be like we spent the entire summer each Sunday uh, analyzing individual pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, right? And we, we can take some time to appreciate the individual pieces, maybe the little piece of artwork that you see on an individual jigsaw piece. Uh, we can learn about how they're made, um, but the, the pieces are meant to come together, Um, into what is God's masterpiece, which is the church. And that's a community of believers who who are designed to fit and function together in a beautiful gospel-magnifying way, and and that's the larger picture. So this morning, we're going to take a little break from looking at the pieces of the puzzle, kind of take a step back and look at the cover of the jigsaw box. You guys ever do that? When you you do a jigsaw puzzle, you have the box as a reference, right? Um, It's really hard to do a jigsaw puzzle if you have no idea how the pieces fit together. But you look at that box, you see the larger picture, and that's what we're going to do this morning. 
So we're going to take a step back um, and not look at the spiritual gifts individually as they are parts of the church body, uh, but look at how God paints it uh, in Scripture as a healthy, functioning body as a whole. You guys with me there? So let me pray for us real quick. God, we thank you for life. We thank you for um, the fact that we're here and alive this morning. We thank you for the gospel. I pray that, um, that I would decrease as you increase and that these words would be profitable to you and, and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I think the question um, for us is, is, is what does a healthy church look like? What is a healthy church? What does a healthy whole body of a church look like? That's the question I want to answer this morning. Uh, what we're reading this morning is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in uh, Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, also known as Thessaloniki, which is something I learned, right? You guys just came from Greece. Was it Thessaloniki? I-K-I. So we can call it any of those. Um, and what we're going to see as we read is, is Paul uh, praising God and encouraging the church for the ways that they are a healthy church at the, at the introduction of this letter. And so even with that little bit of context, right off the bat, I think that we can conclude what a healthy church is not. Um, a healthy church is not a church that has made it uh, and can kind of coast along until Jesus comes back. And we know this because Paul is writing them a letter where he's shepherding and pastoring them and giving them direction for where they ought to go next. He's, he's spending time correcting and rebuking them in some cases uh, because they're not perfect saints who are acting out uh, the church flawlessly. And so being a healthy church does not, not mean that we as a body of believers have it all together. Um, I think on the contrary, uh, a healthy church is one that, that has the humility to be able to acknowledge that they don't have it all together, but who are striving to grow and mature. So that's something we're going to talk about later, but my point is this, that a healthy church is not necessarily a perfect church. Um, as you'd see by reading Paul's entire letter, um, and, and really any other letter to any of the, uh, the churches in the first century. But that doesn't mean that churches can't be healthy um, if there's still a little bit of a mess. And so who are the Thessalonians? Um, well, they were a church plant, kind of similar to us, a little bit younger. Uh, they're based in the capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia. Uh, it's a fairly large city of about 100,000 people, um, and it's really a, a hub for trade and philosophy. A lot of things going in and out of this city. And you can read all about when Paul, Timothy, and Silas first went there to plant the church in Acts chapter 17. Uh, but since then, the church has been growing. Um, but there are some issues within the church. They weren't a perfect church. Uh, Paul spends this letter and a second one talking about a, a lot of different things, but there are really two major issues uh, that we see Paul pastoring them through. One is theological uh, and one is practical. Again, there's a lot of issues that he's touching upon, but these are two major ones that span both letters to the Thessalonians. So the Thessalonians had experienced death in their congregation. Uh, people died as they naturally do. And, and because they were a younger church and, and everyone uh, was relatively young in their faith, they didn't have a ton of strong leadership uh, in their presence. They had Paul, who had to leave because he was planning other churches, um, that didn't really know what it meant theologically when someone would die. Uh, would those people who died miss out on Jesus coming back? Uh, was their death maybe a sign of God's disapproval of them for something that they had done? See, there were no commentaries at this time. There wasn't any Wayne Grudems out there writing systematic theology textbooks. 
these questions, which uh, apparently weren't addressed in their initial conversion, that they were legitimate and serious questions um, that the Thessalonians had. What would happen to them as church members, as believers in Christ, if, if they had died right on the spot? And so we see Paul addressing this issue in his letter, letters. A lot of it is talking um, about, um, about Jesus coming back and what it looks like for them to have this promise of resurrection if they were to die just like Jesus did. And so that was the theological issue that they had. Um, their second issue was less theological, uh, although it probably stemmed from the uncertainty of the future. Um, there were a lot of believers in the church who were basically freeloading off of the charity of the wealthier church members. Um, there were people in the church probably basing their actions on the conception that Jesus was coming at any minute uh, who, were, who weren't going to work uh, and were being taken care of by other church members. And now, this idea is not anti-charity. Um, these were not people who were incapable of working. Uh, these were people who were very capable of work, who Paul exhorts out of idleness and laziness. And you see this as a theme through both of the, the letters. He goes so far as to say in the second letter, if you're not willing to work, then you don't eat. Right? So this isn't people who are looking on, or who need charity. These are people who are able to work um, and able to provide for themselves and their families, but they, they weren't. And so it's actually, like I mentioned, a recurring theme throughout the first um, and second letters to the Thessalonians. So you look at those two issues, and despite them being a lazy church uh, with bad theology, Paul does highlight at the beginning of his letter to them what makes them, maybe surprisingly, a healthy church. They're a healthy church despite being lazy and having some poor theology. So this sermon, I, this morning I have a three-point sermon for you, which uh, is a contrast to my last 20-point sermon on leadership. If you're, I apologize. Uh, even toward the end, I was getting bored. I was like, oh my gosh, how many more points are there? So anyways, three points this morning. Some of those are broken into sub-points, so I snuck extra ones in there, but three major points. So let's jump in, uh, starting with verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for, always for all of you, consistently, I'm sorry, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So as we look at what is a healthy church, the first sign of a healthy church is that a, a, a church that is converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it seems like this would be a no-brainer, but it's an important distinction nonetheless that, that lays a basis for what a biblically healthy gospel-believing church is. And you, maybe like the Thessalonians, might wonder, what does it mean to be converted? Right? That's a big word. Um, Paul does an awesome job at laying down the theology of conversion um, and the implications of what it means to be converted, really in one sentence, so very productive use of words. In verse 4, Paul says, For we, and that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, know, brothers, that's the Thessalonians, loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel, the good news of salvation um, by faith in Jesus Christ, came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So in this one sentence, Paul gives the Thessalonians and us a working theology 
of conversion. He's saying that uh, Thessalonians, God loves you, uh, God chose you, the gospel of Jesus Christ was communicated to you by us, and the Holy Spirit revealed it to you within your heart and brought about a full conviction in your response in it. That's what conversion is. So if we're reading this, and, and I think that the thought right away is if, if you're not a part of a community where this is the underlying experience of the members of that community, that community, no matter what it's called or where it meets, it is not a healthy church. That's not a healthy church. If you're a part of a community that maybe reads the Bible uh, but regards Jesus as more of a teacher and a philosopher and not a savior, then you're, you're not being a part of a healthy church. Um, if you're a part of a community who, of people who believe that God loves you and loves everybody else, um, but there's no presence of a Holy Spirit who's bringing people to full conviction, right? The, the, the full conviction of the seriousness of sin and, and the joy of grace and redemption when that sin is acknowledged and repented of, if that's the church community you're in, it's, it's not a healthy church. And so the Thessalonians are missing some pieces of theology, uh, which Paul does fill in later on throughout his letters, but they have this major one down, and Paul affirms it in them. He's saying, man, we, we thank God for you as often as we remember you, knowing that God knows you, that he loves you, that he chose you, that he revealed the gospel to you, and, and that you are converted. See, Paul rejoices. He's excited. He gets giddy when he's praying with, with Timothy and Silas. He says, hey, remember the Thessalonians? Yeah, we got to preach them the gospel, and, and the gospel took root in them, and they are truly converted. This is something that excites Paul as a church planner, the fact that they are genuinely converted. Not, not just receiving head knowledge and some ideas, some textbook ideas, but, but this idea of full conviction to the core of who they were. But how does Paul know that they're converted? He's convinced that they're converted, but how does he know? Maybe it's because he has like these spirit x-ray goggles, right, that only apostles get, and they can put them on, and they can see, oh, converted, not converted, definitely not converted, definitely converted. No, it, it's not that, right? He doesn't have special goggles, mostly because they don't exist, but um, also because Paul says, we know, we know. He, he's referring to Timothy and Silas also having a certainty in the Thessalonians' conversion. So it's not a superpower for Paul the Apostle. It's something that is discernible by other believers. So conversion then is not this uh, purely invisible, spiritual, emotional thing. It's not just a feeling. Um, there are practical implications, or what the Bible often refers to as fruit, that is only born um, in those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. So Paul, in one sentence again, again, very effective communicator, he gives us insight into why he, Timothy, and Silas are certain that those in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki are converted. In verse 2 and 3, it says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work in faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What we can gather from this is that a healthy converted church will, will not just have a correct theology about conversion, but, but will act on that conversion in very specific ways. 
Um, here we see the pretty famous triad of, of Christian virtues. We have faith, love, and hope. I saw some photos of, uh, from a wedding yesterday, and like the huge banner right behind them was faith, love, and hope. So it is, it is a very consistent theme uh, in our Christian faith. Uh, and Paul is thankful for these being evident among the Thessalonians, but the emphasis here um, that he has is not on the virtues by themselves, but actually what they produce. Each of those virtues are paired with something else. We see that their faith produces work, and you can assume that that work is then done in faith. We also see that love sustains laboring for others. And so you could assume that that laboring is also tied back to, to being the fuel, um, is being fueled by love. Their hope creates a steadfastness, and their steadfastness will be driven by their hope. See, the Thessalonians' faith in Jesus um, as their Savior led them to serve one another and the unconverted people around them. And so while they, they may not have been uh, working to produce income for themselves, this is not a contradiction um, as it's referring to the work of ministry and service. So we've got these people who are sold out to the gospel, and they're like literally camped out at church. And they're serving, they're loving the community. And so later on as we talk about work, um, it's not that they're not serving. They are, they're actually serving too much. And Paul's saying, you need to go take care of yourselves and your family, but then also be doing this at the same time. Uh, but he sees that they're working in, in, in ways of service and of ministry. And so the distinction here, um, as the Thessalonians are doing this, is, uh, is that their work and their service uh, is one that, that is not motivated by guilt or penance. It is a response to their faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. So they, they served in the church, whether that was through uh, helping set up hospitality or through teaching or, or through pastoring or, or maybe just greeting people um, at the front door specifically because they believed that since God had been gracious enough to give them his life, the only logical response is to graciously give their lives in work and service of others that they may also receive that grace. Again, this is not a payment for salvation or them earning their keep. This is a natural response to the converted person. But as the Thessalonians are working and as they're serving, it, it wasn't just their faith that initiated their willingness to work, but once they began working and serving, it was done in love. There are two different ancient uh, Greek words for work. One is ergon and one is kopos. So ergon was used previously to refer to work, and this, is a, this can be a, a pleasant or stimulating type of work, but the kopos, which is used here, implies toil that is strenuous and sweat-inducing, right? So two different kinds of work. This is the one that is toilsome and sweat-producing work. Another phrase that's often translated out of this is the idea of long-suffering. And so the converted Thessalonians, with their faith in Jesus Christ, were not just serving when it was easy to do so, uh, but continuing to do so when it became strenuous and difficult, and doing it at that time out of love for the people that they were serving. Again, not as a way to pay God back, but as a way to express the love of God that they themselves had been experiencing um, from their initial conversion. And so lastly, Paul points to their steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. So the Thessalonians weren't just experiencing a weekend retreat that they got them super amped up emotionally um, to follow Jesus, but, but then kind of simmered off as they got back into their regular flow of life. Um, Paul here is pointing to their steadfastness in serving and laboring, not just at the mountaintop, um, 
But as they've gone through the valley as well, and they have been going through the valley, uh, remember that this isn't necessarily a popular time to be a Christian. And not only that, but they've experienced death and loss within their church. But even amidst the theological misunderstandings and the relative newness of faith, they were remaining steadfast to the message that was originally preached to them. And this steadfastness is not driven by their iron will or, or, or their, their own personal perseverance or this stellar ability to just white-knuckle through challenging days, right, where it's hard to, to have that faith. No, it, it, it's being driven by their hope in Jesus Christ and the future promises of grace that they have in the gospel. And so a healthy church is a converted church, both theologically but, but also practically in the manifestations of faith, love, and hope. Uh, my personal experience with church the past 10 years or so has been rocky. And I've, I've been looking for a good word to use. And, and I think rock, and rocky's not always bad, right? If you're a rock climber, rocky's a great description of how your day was. Um, so in 2008, I, uh, I was going to UMass. I was a sophomore at UMass Amherst. Um, and I decided to go to something called Mercy House Nights. And uh, what started out as a Sunday night extension of Mercy House aimed at meeting during a time that UMass students weren't as hungover uh, really turned and blossomed into a church plant that I'd be a part of for the next eight years. And that time doing church and life with my best friends who are in this room today, uh, we've done life, I've been in their weddings, they've been in my weddings, it's been probably the best, most joy-filled years of my life. But those eight years were also loaded with some of the most challenging, tear-soaked, sweat- and pain-inducing years of my life. Um, during that time, I celebrated, like I mentioned, more weddings in that time period than I think I ever will, ever again. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I mourned more deaths uh, and more people making a shipwreck of their lives and their faith than I hope I'll ever experience again. And I'll be the first to tell you that the church that I was part of was not perfect by any means, but there is no doubt in my mind that our church community was one that was con a converted church community, both theologically and practically. And, and, I, and I know that with certainty, um, theologically, because I have a correct understanding of theology, but, but also practically in that that church would not have existed as long as it did, considering the immense challenges of being a young church plant. And so I share this with you because a healthy church isn't a church that has it all together and looks perfect. It isn't a church that doesn't experience seasons of challenge and deep heartache. It isn't a church that is, that is perfect and spotless. One of the three marks of a healthy church is a church that is converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and let me tell you, as a person who knows the gospel, um, who knows the leaders of this church, um, and has experienced and seen works of faith, labors of love, and steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. Mercy House is a converted church. Mercy House is a converted church, and that is a big deal. Let that encourage you. Let that give you some peace, because uh, frankly, that's a big deal in today's age, and especially in this area. But Mercy House, this church, this house of faith is one that is a converted church. So let's one sign of a healthy church. So let's read on, starting in uh, verse 6. And you, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The second mark of a healthy church is a church that is maturing, that is growing. 
um, not in numbers, but in depth of spiritual understanding and faith. Now, there's a few things going on here, uh, but the gist of verse 6 and 7 is Paul saying, uh, you heard the gospel, you received the gospel, and you began being imitators and followers of me and of God. Not only this, uh, but you are imitating and following in such a way that it's actually setting an example for other believers in this entire region of the world. So that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Um, it's a big deal because, like I mentioned earlier, there's not a huge surplus of church fathers at this point, right? The only other Christians they had interacted with at this point were Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Christianity is just blossoming um, at this point. So the, the early churches don't have this luxury of having older, more mature Christians who have been believers for a long time to be their spiritual parents, Uh, But that doesn't stop them from maturing in their faith and being an example to the next and the current generation of believers. This first generation in uh, Thessaloniki is, is filled with pioneers of our faith struggling with challenges and issues of both theology and, and practicality. They're, they're answering tough questions like, what happens to you when you die? Uh, to figuring out how to distribute food to the poor, um, how to have Bible studies, how to have a correct theology of work. Um, how do you do church? They're answering all of those questions. They stepped up to the plate and they matured without spiritual mothers or fathers there in in direct discipleship, one-on-one discipleship with them every single day, without books on church planning or without blogs on prayer or without desiringgod.com or the Gospel Coalition, they were able to mature as believers. So a mark of a healthy church is a church that is maturing regardless um, of external factors that might be helpful or detrimental to their growth as believers. And this is because Christian maturity happens when we commit to being imitators of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Uh, pure and simple. Paul says that they're being imitators of him, uh, but that's really because they didn't have a physical Bible that would later embody all of Paul's uh, teachings and theology. So if you want to mature as a believer, I think that this, this might be a li- this is me speaking, by the way, so if, if you want to mature as a believer, um, I would say to not get caught up in developing disciplines, finding a discipler, going to seminars, and reading books. Those can all help you mature, but the reason that they're helping you mature is because they break down for you and help you understand how to better imitate and be more like Christ and what we see laid out in Scripture. That is the ends to having disciplines of reading your Bible every single day, of going to conferences, of reading books. So I'm not saying that we should isolate ourselves and just mature on your own. You, you can't live out faith-filled service without people to serve. You can't labor out of love without people to love. You can't remain steadfast in those two things with your hope set in Christ but without a body of believers to encourage you in that process. Um, that, that's the design of man, to be in community. And even Paul here is saying in person, encouraging them, to, to be imitators of him, which he does in other places in Scripture as well. But I think that if spiritual maturity happens simply when we are striving to be more like Jesus, letting Scripture be the blueprint um, for how we operate in this world, then that dispels some lies for us as a church community. Uh, the first one is that you need older Christians in your life in order to mature spiritually. This is not true. 
Um, it would be a huge blessing if there were older people who had been faithful through like World War II, right? And, and all they do is just spout wisdom to you and encouragement and, and they always constantly challenge you. And, and you might have people in your life like this. People who um, are able to do family business and finances in a redeemed gospel way. And, and that would be awesome. And if you have this, you are super blessed, and you need to know that, um, that you have access to something that would be coveted by the Thessalonians during this time. Uh, but we don't need those in order to mature. What we need is Jesus and a Bible and a church family that is all dedicated to being more like Jesus. And you will mature spiritually. And someday, as we faithfully and steadfastly spend our lives imitating Christ and letting the Bible inform everything that we do in life, we can, we can be those old wisdom-spitting, mature believers that we always wanted as young believers for some young, hungry believer who has no idea how blessed they are. That's what we get to be. That's what the, the first generation in Thessalonica got to be for the next generation. And spiritual parents, spiritual mentors and disciplers, they're a huge blessing. Um, but they're not a necessity for spiritual growth. And something I also hear a lot um, is that Mercy House is a young church. We're a young church. Uh, we're not a young church. Um, yeah, we, we do have a ton of college students and coming and up in a few weeks, this place is going to be loaded with a bunch of young people who are figuring out how and what to do with their lives. We also have a lot of sleep-deprived parents with kids under five, uh, but we're not a young church. I, I've had the opportunity to, to direct a few trips to Uganda, uh, working with a program called Come Let's Dance, and no, it's not a dance ministry. That's what everyone always asks. It's based on uh, the psalm that refers to God turning people's mourning um, into dancing. And, and so while I was there, I met this guy named Wilson Bugembe. He's a pop singer in Uganda. He's one of the most, at the time, one of the most popular uh, singers uh, gospel singers there, um, and he's actually come out here and spent time in America. He lived in the townhouses in Amherst, and we like walked, it was like mind-blowing for him, uh, and it was crazy because his story is amazing. Um, he was a homeless orphan boy um, who literally one day walked into a radio station because he heard that they were having a competition uh, for singing, and he sang, and they gave him a record deal. To, to sing more songs. A little 12-year-old boy. Um, him and his band of orphan friends, it's like a book or a movie, but he, there was like a, a band of little orphan boys um, at one point heard the gospel after this, and, and they became believers when, they were when he was 15 years old, so a couple years after getting his record deal. So they were so captured and, and, and so enamored by the gospel that they decided um, as teenagers to, start, to try to start a church. They're like 16, 17 years old at this point. So, so people would come to hear Wilson Bugembe sing because he's a pop icon. Uh, but he told me sometimes I would just preach the gospel. There would be like thousands of people coming to hear him sing and he would just, at, at the beginning, he would just read out of the Bible to them. And the church exploded, exploded. Um, <laughs> When I met him, he was 20 years old, and he was the lead pastor of a church of 4,000 people. 4,000 people. And his orphan brothers, ranging in the ages of 18 and 22, were the pastors of this church. Right, so here's some pictures. I, have some, I grabbed some uh, off their website. Um, there's a chair in the air there. Do you see that? <laughs> so worship, get, there's a bunch of chairs. I don't know. That's like, they're just super excited to worship. 
Um, there's a couple others, I think, too. Yep, there's another. It's dark, but it, like, is an endless sea of people back there. There's one more, too. All right, so this is a typical Sunday morning um, in Kampala. And uh, they literally fill soccer stadiums each Sunday for worship. Uh, Wilson is now 26 years old. He's two years younger than I am. Mercy House is not a young church. We, we are not filled with baby Christians here. If you were to ask Wilson, hey, is your church young? He'd be like, no. We've been doing this for like seven years, right? He'd think that you've been doing this for like a lifetime. Um, I think it's important to realize that Mercy House is not a young church uh, because that type of mentality also comes with, I, I can't grow spiritually here or, or, or I can't really mature here. I, I need older people to challenge, and, and to, to challenge me and to, uh, so that I can mature and, and people to give me answers. And, and that's just not true. And, and I've heard it. I've, I've been a part of that griping as well myself. The Thessalonians didn't have any other guides or models other than Paul, Timothy, and Silas. They were a young church, but they were still able to mature, so much so that they became an example to other believers who were also trying to figure things out. Let that be an encouragement. Even if we were a young church, which we're not, we're still able to mature and grow, and we can be an example to other young believers. And so the second mark of a healthy church is a church that that is maturing to be more like Christ by imitating him and letting their lives be informed by what Scripture says. With the amount of theologically sound, meat-filled, uh, or dense, densely nutritious Sunday morning food being given each Sunday morning, um, this is a phenomenal place to grow and mature. That's vanity, right? Trying to pick up each one. Um, in vain. Sorry, we're doing a work study on, or a Bible study on work, and so I've been analyzing everything. Like, is this worth my time? And so, I'm sorry. It's not worth my time to bend up at each time and pick those up. Mercy House is a fantastic environment to grow spiritually and to mature spiritually, um, despite despite having a lack of people with a lot of white hair. Though I think we are growing in that department as I look out <laughs> and see some of the people out there, Keith Benoit. Um, so those are two marks of a healthy church. Uh, let's read on, and, and we're going to finish with this last one uh, in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So healthy churches are, are not only converted churches, um, not only maturing churches, but, but also multiplying churches. Churches that are, are multiplying, growing in number now, not just in depth. And Paul is saying not only is, is the gospel affecting and converting the Thessalonians, not only is it maturing them to the point of them being examples of Christian faith to others in Macedonia, but it's being sounded forth everywhere so that Paul, Silas, and Timothy don't even have to do their jobs as missionaries. Um, essentially, they don't have to worry about bringing the word to places around Macedonia because the Thessalonians are sharing the gospel with everybody around them. The gospel is spreading in this area like wildfire, and, and it's in due 
it, it's, in, it's due lar- in large part to the Thessalonians getting out and communicating it uh, to their neighbors. And so these past weeks, we have looked at the gifts of evangelism and of apostleship. Um, and within the story of the Thessalonian church, you can see both very clearly as being uh, just uh, essential to their growth as a community um, and, and staples of what it means to be a church. Um, Paul, who is an appointed apostle, speaking with the authority of Jesus, he, he exhibits the gift of apostleship by bringing the gospel to places that it's never been for, like uh, Thessaloniki in, in Macedonia, to a context that is not conducive or prepared for the gospel to be preached, yet, yet he preaches it. And, and not only does he preach it um, and people get converted, but he spends time there establishing a church. Um, he sets up the systems and structures uh, so that the church can continue to exist uh, without them needing him to be there. And last week we heard from Timothy Robinson who's doing just this. He's bringing the gospel to a community in Fitchburg and planting a church there. Um, and Pastor Tim, he's not just preaching and teaching. He, he's laboring. He talked about staying up all night often, thinking about how, how does this grow beyond something that is just circled around me? How does this stand alone to be a church? And so he, he's, he's planting a church community there. He's, he's helping to labor um, in building healthy church community. And what's crazy is that through that bubble of believers at the Harvest Church in Fitchburg, um, who, who is filled with people who were converted and are maturing, um, the community of Fitchburg around them is being transformed. It's being completely transformed. And we heard that as Tim is sharing stories about what God is doing there. The gospel is being preached and shared in Fitchburg, and it's not just Tim who's doing it. It's other people who have been converted and are growing and maturing in their faith. It's just like the church in Thessaloniki. And so this order is important, from conversion to maturing to multiplying. I I went through a, a rock climbing phase, uh, and the way that my brain works is when I go through phases, they're more accurately described as like obsessions, right? Uh, just because I get super excited about things, I learn all about them. I'll watch every YouTube video. I'll read every article that I can get my hands on, um, and it becomes my obsession. So my obsession with rock climbing lasted um, about a year, um, where I climbed a central rock gym with a group of guys five to six nights a week for a minimum of three hours until like my hands couldn't hold on to anything, right? And then I would try to drive home with my elbows because I couldn't grip the steering wheel. If you're a climber and you drive, you know what I'm talking about. Um, And you might wonder, what initiated this obsession? Well, I was a single guy and I was dealing with a breakup, so that pretty much explains any extraneous and excessive hobbying (laughs) ever. But I remember... I remember for the first time uh, when I went climbing, I, I finished the, this climbing route, um, and, and there was like this last move just to get to, to, to the very last hold, and there's like green tape around it. As soon as you get both hands on it, it means you're done. I was just about there, and, and I was like, it was, it was the biggest stretch, and my fingertips were just grabbing it, and I started to fall, and there was a moment where I had to let the weight fall off of my feet so that I can grab onto the hold, and, and there was that moment, right? It's a combination of fear, because you're 60 feet off the ground, and you're feeling like you're falling, but then when you grab it and hold on and you don't fall, I mean, in that moment, um, I, was, I was sold on rock climbing. I was so excited. I was hooked. You could say that I was converted to rock climbing. 
at that point. I stopped. I remember I stopped at Eastern Mountain Sports on my way home. I bought a harness, and the rest was history. I came back the next night, and then the next night, and then the next night. I watched the other climbers who'd been climbing for years. Um, I would ask them how to do things. I would try to imitate the way that they were climbing and moving their body to be the most efficient climber that I could be. And eventually, I was, I was having so much fun. I started inviting everyone I knew. I was like, hey, man, have you been rock climbing? You got to go rock climbing. It was the best thing in the whole world. It's super healthy for you. You'll live forever if you do it. And everybody that I, I came into contact with, I would tell them about rock climbing. I inevitably got almost all the people I lived with to start rock climbing with me. Um, and our, ho- our house started spending more time at the rock gym than like in the house uh, together. Uh, and and it, was, it was an awesome time for us. Why am I telling you this? Well, if you ever need a climbing buddy, you can call me. I'd love to come with you. But seriously, um, this is... This is a cycle that is common in regular life as, in addition to the church. This cycle of conversion, maturation, and multiplication, it's natural to us. I wasn't telling people about the rock gym and convincing them to join without having first been there and experiencing it for myself. That would be weird, right? They would have to pay me to advertise the rock gym. But it was coming from an experience that I had, a genuine experience, And the order here matters. And for a healthy church to experience multiplication uh, requires that the church have an experience of conversion and also be in the process of maturation. And then multiplication happens. You can't expect a church or an individual, for for that matter, to share the gospel and multiply um, if the church or the individual has not experienced the gospel um, and are not growing in the gospel. So let me wrap all this together and and we'll land the plane. Um, As we look at the picture on the puzzle box, so to speak, at what the goal of using all our spiritual gifts uh, that we've been talking about this summer, the the picture is of a church that is converted, uh, that is maturing, and that is multiplying. So when all of the giftings from from prophecy to service to teaching to giving to mercy um, to exhortation to evangelism to apostleship, when all of these are used the way that they're supposed to be used, the result is a healthy church. Not a perfect church, not a church that has it all together, but a healthy church nonetheless. And when you put conversion aside and take that part of the three out, The ebb and flow of regular members of a church um, is going to be broken into two major ideas, the one of gathering and the one of scattering. Gathering and scattering. Maturing in our faith, uh, being equipped and being built up, that happens when we gather together. Um, not just on Sunday mornings, but in fellowship with one another throughout the week as well, whether that's in a a Bible study or spending time one-on-one with another believer. And then the multiplying and the sharing of the gospel happens when we scatter from those gatherings. And so this is a constant natural flow back and forth. Gathering to be equipped and to be built up, then scattering to serve and spread the gospel. Then back gathering together again to be encouraged and challenged, and then scattering again to live sacrificially and faithfully. Back and forth, back and forth. The essence of this stems from the reality that that we are not home. This is not home for us as believers. This is a fallen world that we live in, um, and it's not a place to get comfortable. During my time in Uganda um, with Wilson, 
we had traveled to the north a couple times, and, and when you travel far enough north, you pass uh, military blockades with, with very large signs that say, you are now entering an active militarized zone, and the UN stops you. Um, and, and you actually have to give them verbal assent that you know and understand the risks and that you are voluntarily entering a war zone, right? Um, we were never at ease there. there was, we weren't making our homes there. We were there with a very specific purpose, with intentionality, knowing that it just wasn't safe. It wasn't home. And so it is with us as we live as sojourners in a foreign land, in a war zone, um, until Christ returns and builds his kingdom here on earth. When that time does come, though, when Jesus does rebuild his kingdom and we live in paradise with Christ, there will no longer be any gathering and scattering. There won't be a need to scatter and share the gospel because the gospel has made its way to the ends of the earth. And we won't need to gather for fellowship because we will be gathered together in perfect fellowship with God in our eternal home with Christ. But until then, until that day, uh, we are to gather and scatter, gather and scatter. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after dinner, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Later that evening, after he did this, um, the disciples actually would scatter, right? Um, they would scatter, but not to share the gospel, uh, the good news of Christ to others, and to make the gospel known, but out of fear of what would happen to them. And later, after his death, the disciples would gather, uh, but it wouldn't be to equip and to build each other up and to serve and live on mission for Christ, but secretly, out of fear of what would happen to them, and people knew who they followed. And so while the call to gather and to scatter seems simple, we can be motivated in similar broken ways like the disciples were during this time. There are some of us who might gravitate um, toward gathering with other believers, and it could stem from a fear of the world around us. Uh, we might love coming to church and going to a Bible study and meeting up with other believers, but when it comes to evangelism and living our, our, our faith and our lives in front of other non-believers, we can be scared of how we'll be perceived um, and find solace in running back to the gathering on Sunday morning or in our Bible study. If this is uh, our motivation for gathering, I think the encouragement is what Jesus says in Matthew sixteen eighteen that the gates of hell shall not prevail. The gates of hell shall not prevail. That, that you don't, that we don't have to live in fear, but as we go forth into a hostile war zone every single day, that the God of the universe has promised us victory and will be with us each step of the way as we advance the gospel. And maybe you're not like this. Maybe you're comfortable living in the world. Maybe too comfortable living in the world. When the disciples scattered after Jesus was captured, it, it wasn't to live out their faith in front of others and share the gospel with them. It was because they were afraid of what others would think of them if they knew um, that they were part of the clique, part of the, the community of believers. And some of us are fine gathering on Sunday morning, but maybe that's where we draw the line. 
Gathering isn't seen as a blessing. Maybe it's just an obligation. Uh, maybe it is a, a piece of religion that we have to adhere to. Uh, maybe it even feels a little bit weird and almost cultish to talk about living out our lives with, uh, with one another and sharing all of these experiences together. We might be afraid to be vulnerable in a Bible study or can't see much use in maturing beyond where we're at. Um, if this is where we're at, I would say tenderly that you're missing out as we read this letter, as Paul is saying, uh, as he's reminiscing of how the church in Thessalonica is living out their faith, it's bringing him joy just thinking about it. And from my personal experience, being a part of church community has, like I mentioned, been the sweetest years of my life. And I think more firmly, the challenge uh, would be to realize that there are people um, that have and are, that follow Jesus, who Pray incessantly for a body of believers like this one right here. Uh, people who would literally weep when they participate in worship alongside this many people. You might think, this isn't that many people, right? Looking at Wilson's church of 10,000 people. This is a lot of believers. This is a lot of believers coming together on a Sunday morning, safe from oppression, being able to worship God and sing in peace. Um, yet we, if we do not gather, if we do not see the blessing and gathering, can have the healthy church, have, take the healthy church that we have for granted. And so as you come, we're going to take communion, and you form a line down the center, and you're going to break off to the sides and swing back into your seats and, and do that in your own time. Um, I want to challenge you to examine your heart and see if there is a place where you are hung up between gathering and scattering. Um, if there is and it's clear, then I would challenge you to repent um, and then to experience the fruit of being a member of a healthy church, which is available here because of what Christ has done in Amherst, Massachusetts. Let me pray for us. The band's going to come back up and we'll take communion. God, we thank you um, that you died for the church, that you paid with your life um, so that we can be a community of believers um, experiencing fellowship um, here on earth as we await perfect fellowship with you. God, I pray that you would um, let us grow as a church, um, that even as we talk about the healthiness of the church as a whole, that you would challenge and convict us um, as individuals of where in that timeline uh, we might be stuck, God, whether it's at conversion, um, at maturing, um, or at multiplying, Lord. I pray that you would challenge us um, so that we could experience uh, just better fellowship with you and in and, and, and living life the way that you designed us to live, God. We thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for us. Um, we thank you for the new covenant in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.